0: So over the course of this retreat so far, we've been offering you a whole range of different meditation practices, mostly focused on developing insight or vipassana, deeply transformative wisdom that frees the heart and mind from all afflictive states. This evening, I'd like to give an overview of a different set of meditation practices, the four Brahma Vihara qualities of kindness, compassion, appreciative joy, and equanimity. And these are four beautiful states of heart and mind that are not only beneficial in and of themselves, they also provide very powerful support for our insight practice. And they provide that support in at least two ways. To use an analogy of physical health, they are both prevention and cure. So first they act as preventatives by making the heart and mind resilient so that we're less prone to attack by the afflictive states such as the five hindrances. So metaphorically I sometimes think of the Brahma as being like vitamin C for our emotional immune system because when we have a strong foundation of kindness, of compassion, of joy, of equanimity it's much harder for harmful mind states to get a grip on us. I'm guessing that most of you have had this experience when we're in a so-called good mood. Little things that otherwise might have irritated or depressed us just seem to bounce off. But if we were to look more closely at what we're calling a good mood, it's likely that one or more of the Brahmavihara states might have been present to some degree offering us their protective power, whether we recognized it at that time or not. And again, you've probably all experienced that the opposite is also true. When we're in a bad mood, um, that underlying negative mind state tends to amplify things and we more easily get caught up in painful emotions. When we do eventually recognize that we've got caught then the Brahma Viharas can be a very powerful remedy or antidote to whatever that afflictive state is. So for example, as I mentioned briefly last week, metta or goodwill is the antidote to aversion or ill will. Compassion is the antidote to suffering, to pain of all kinds, whether it's physical or emotional. Appreciative joy is the antidote to envy or jealousy. And equanimity is the antidote to all types of reactivity, to imbalance and to bias. So again, metaphorically, the Brahma Vaharas act as remedies, as medicine to relieve the symptoms of the afflictive mind states. And they act as preventatives that make them less likely to come up in the first place. So this ties into the four great efforts that Guy mentioned briefly this morning. The working with the Brahma Viharas is a powerful way to strengthen the right effort of bringing skillful qualities into being. And even though there are four of these Brahma Vihara qualities, we tend to hear most about the first one, metta, usually translated as loving-kindness, and the other three of compassion, appreciative joy, and equanimity are not generally given as much attention. And one of the downsides of this relative overweighting of metta is that it can give the impression that metta is supposed to be our default response to every situation. But in fact, there are some situations where metta might not be the most appropriate response, might even possibly be harmful. And so, this is one reason why I wanted to give an overview of all four of these qualities. Because, in my own practice, learning how to work with all four of them has been very helpful for navigating afflictive emotions and for navigating the challenging phases of the path of insight. So, all four qualities are equally skillful states. And they're sometimes described as different flavors of love. And because each one does have a different flavor, it has different benefits for the heart-mind. So a few of us have mentioned the, about training to recognize our difficult emotions because unless we have some clarity about what a specific afflictive state is, we won't know what the best remedy for it is either. And while in some ways, meta can be seen as almost like a universal solvent that helps to release most painful states, as I said earlier, some of them may not be best met by meta. And last week, I briefly touched into, in my own experience, sometimes catching myself sort of misusing meta as a way of disconnecting from my experience. So sometimes on retreat, I'd find myself mechanically reciting the phrases, may I be well, may I be happy, may I be safe, may I be And what I was really saying was, I hate this, get it away from it, make it stop, make it go away. So that's just one way that we can use metta unconsciously to distance ourselves. And I'll be saying more about that later in the talk. But just to say for now that, Just as the Brahmavihara practices support insight, support wisdom, in turn, we also need wisdom to support the Brahmavihara practices so that we don't end up practicing them in ways that might not be so helpful. So before I go into a little bit more detail about each of them, just a bit about the term Brahmavihara itself. It's another of those difficult phrases to translate into English because the word Brahma refers to a kind of god that was worshipped in certain spiritual traditions in India at the time of the Buddha. And we don't really have an equivalent of Brahma in our own culture, so it's sometimes translated as heaven instead. And the term Vihara means dwelling place. So, Brahma Vihara on one level literally means the dwelling place of Brahma. But it's more usually translated as divine abodes or sublime abidings or heavenly realms or boundless states. And I'd like to highlight the aspect of Vihara as being home. Because these four states are our true home a refuge for our hearts and minds. And when our hearts and minds are not assailed by stress, distress, difficulty, this is where we naturally abide or dwell. There's a sense of ease there, just as there is in our physical homes, a place or state where we can feel relaxed, comfortable, and who we truly are. So the second aspect of the term Brahmavihara that I like to highlight is a quality of boundlessness. So sometimes these four are called the four immeasurables, with the understanding that we can cultivate them so fully that they become unlimited, boundless, completely unconditional, which is a very high bar. So before that starts to activate any sense of inadequacy, it's important to remember that these are practices. And we have to start where we are. We have to have the patience, as Dawn mentioned the other night, to let these different qualities develop gradually through regularly training in them, cultivating them, applying them to our lives. So traditionally we begin with the training of metta, because in this tradition, metta is the foundation that the other three develop from. And metta is a Pali word that's commonly translated into English as loving-kindness. However, some scholars and teachers have pointed out that this is not always such an accurate or helpful translation, because at least to some ears, it can sound a little bit sentimental, And the loving part can be confusing because in English the word love covers such a range of different meanings. So, from the banal, we talk about loving ice cream, for example, and then as our obsession with romantic love, and that kind of love is very exclusive. It's reserved, in theory, for only one person. It's very emotional, it's unstable, and it usually doesn't last. So in some ways, it's the opposite of the kind of love that we're talking about in relation to metta because it's so conditional. Whereas metta, as a brahma is a quality that can become completely unconditional. So some people leave out the loving part of loving-kindness and translate metta as simply kindness. Kindness, goodwill, benevolence, friendliness. Because the Pali word metta does come from the same root word for friendliness, my tree. So perhaps thinking of this as friendliness makes it more accessible. In fact, in some suttas, metta is defined simply as non-ill will. So hopefully that makes it feel a little more attainable. And we've already started this practice with Carol last Tuesday evening using the reciting phrases method of practice. And these are some of the common traditional phrases. May you be free from enmity. May you have mental happiness. May you have physical happiness. May you take care of yourself happily. We can also use those in relation to ourselves so in the beginning, we're encouraged to start with where this quality of metta might come most easily, which for most of us means keeping it simple and for myself, natural. So in recent years, I've started turning to the creatures around us in the natural environment as an easy source of metta because i found it sometimes easier to get the practice going with non-human beings than it is with human beings, because in general, our relationship to animals, to birds, to fish, even to insects, is sometimes less complicated than it is with actual human beings. So in the last couple of years, I've got in a bit of a habit of paying attention to the wildlife in whatever part of the world I'm teaching to see if I can find specific creatures that might evoke one or more of these Brahma Vihara qualities. And here at IMS, as I walk to and from my cottage, I've been re-engaging with the red efts. You probably know that those little orange reptiles, mm-hmm. tiny little things with colored spots along their back. They're apparently a juvenile form of the red-spotted newt And whenever I see one, because of their color, fortunately, they're pretty easy to spot. But whenever I see one, I notice just a tiny pulse of warmth in my heart. And just for a moment or two, whatever i had been preoccupied with dissolves. And unlike most of the wildlife around here, these red efts move quite slowly. So it's possible to spend a bit of time just being with them. And when I do that, I notice a natural sense of care. I want to avoid stepping on them. And so in that way, they support me in the practice of mindfulness of walking, and I feel a little pulse of gratitude. So for me, that natural sense of warmth and care that comes up when I see a red eft, those are aspects of metta. Perhaps some of you have also had that experience. So just for a moment you might like to imagine or perhaps remember seeing one of these little newts and notice is there just a little flicker of warmth perhaps a little trace of a smile or a softening of the eyes If so you might let that register as metta and if not Don't worry, maybe reptiles just aren't your thing. (laughs) Perhaps you can find some other wild or domestic creature that is. And you might, over the next few days, as you're out walking, see if you can find some being that evokes metta for you. So metta is a foundation quality of friendliness, kindness, goodwill. And it's said that when this base of goodwill turns towards suffering, towards pain or distress, it flowers naturally as the second Brahmavihara, which is karuna or compassion. And compassion is the willingness to turn towards pain, towards stress, distress, dukkha in all its forms, to meet it with kindness, and when possible, to help it release. So because of this intention of relieving suffering, compassion is not simply empathy. It's not just the heart that vibrates in response to our own or another's pain. There's also an orientation to relieving that pain, if at all possible. So sometimes people ask, well, what's the difference between metta and compassion? So to me, metta is more a generalized goodwill or friendliness, whereas compassion is specifically oriented towards pain and suffering. So there is a close connection between the two, but energetically, compassion feels a bit different. So as I mentioned a few moments ago, sometimes, again, in my own experience, I can use metta to disconnect myself from what's difficult. But when we're using the phrases for compassion, this is a little harder to do because they ask us to engage very directly with suffering. So, for example, some phrases, I'm aware of this pain, pain here being physical or emotional. I care about this pain. May this pain release. May I know peace. So you get a sense from those phrases that invitation is to connect directly with what's difficult and also to remind ourselves that there is the possibility for it to release and for us to know peace. So again, to perhaps get a more direct sense of how compassion might feel, I'd like to share another animal story from around here, from quite recently, This one might be a little more painful, so as you listen, again, please keep in mind that compassion is about orienting to the relief of suffering where possible. So just last week, I was walking along Pleasant Street with a couple of friends, and we noticed a series of small animals that had been squashed on the road. And as we got closer, we saw that they were baby turtles, probably newly hatched. And they'd wandered onto the road and been hit by cars. Some of you may have noticed them too. My friends and I were feeling quite sad at this destruction of life and what was likely to have been a painful death, though hopefully a quick one. And as we were looking at this scene, we noticed four baby turtles right on the edge of the road who'd survived. And so me and my friends picked them up very gently and move them off into the undergrowth where they hopefully would feel safe and be safe. And as I watched my friends pick up the surviving turtles with such care, and as I was doing the same thing myself, to me that was a poignant moment of compassion in action. So again, as you heard that story, you might notice any energetic response in the body or the heart. And if so, did it feel different than metta? This is part of the skill training of the Brahma Viharas to be able to tune in to the body, the heart, the mind and to notice how these different flavors of love affect us. And if we're getting off balance in some way, to redirect our practice into a different Brahma vihara to help us get centered again, to re-find balance. So for example, if we're practicing with compassion and we find ourselves getting lost in sorrow or grief, then it might be ter- time to turn to the third of these four brahma-viharas, which is mudita, often translated as sympathetic joy, altruistic joy, or appreciative joy because traditionally the orientation here is towards sharing in other people's happiness. It's the capacity to feel gladness when we connect with someone else's good qualities or success or good fortune. And of these four Brahma Viharas, this one seems to be the poor cousin. It doesn't get nearly as much attention as the others. And I wonder if that's perhaps because in our dominant Western culture with its competitive and highly individualistic values, the idea of appreciating other people's success is not one that makes a lot of sense. So for some people, this is the most challenging of the four Brahma Viharas. But if we do persevere with it, we might find that that ability to celebrate other people's happiness brings many benefits we start to understand that excessive self-preoccupation is a recipe for unhappiness, not happiness. So some of you are familiar with the famous lines from the Tibetan master Shantideva that capture this truth very clearly. He says, All the joy the world contains has come through wishing happiness for others. All the misery the world contains has come through wanting pleasure for oneself. So while at first mudita might seem counterintuitive, if we continue with it, we usually find that our sense of separateness, of isolation, of lack, starts to diminish. We feel more connected to others, kinder, more generous. We stop taking our own problems quite so personally, and we recognize that all beings want to be happy just as we do. And so it becomes easier to understand the truth of interconnectedness. Just to give a quick sense of the traditional phrases that we might use in mudita practice, here are some examples I got from Michelle MacDonald. May your happiness and good fortune continue. May they increase. May they never wane. Or, I appreciate your happiness and good fortune. Or simply, I'm happy that you're happy. So to get a felt sense, perhaps, of the flavor of mudita, I'd like to give another animal example. I'd originally planned to stick with creatures around here but speaking of turtles earlier, that story reminded me of a more positive turtle encounter that I had quite a few years ago now, from a time after I'd left New Zealand and I was living in New South Wales in Australia. And at that time, that part of Australia was in the middle of a serious drought. and I was going camping with a friend who has a real affinity for reptiles of all kinds, So we were driving to our destination in outback New South Wales through very dry, brown farmland. And every now and then we would see a dam or a watering hole in one of the fields. And there would generally be almost no water in those dams, just cracked, dried mud at the bottom. And as we drove for hour after hour through these this bone dry landscape my my friend suddenly slammed on the brakes and put the car into reverse and I looked back to try to see what had made him stop but all I could see was a small brownish lump in the middle of the road to me it could have just been a piece of rubbish but my friend had immediately recognized it as a small turtle one that had probably left one of those dried up dams in search of water so we went back And my friend picked up the turtle and brought it in the car with us with the intention of finding it some water somewhere. So not surprisingly, the turtle wasn't too happy about this strange experience of suddenly finding itself sitting on a car dashboard. So it pulled in its head, it pulled in its limbs, and it released a small puddle of pee. And I can tell you that even though it was a very small quantity, Dehydrated turtle pea is extremely pungent. <laughs> so because that was a memorable experience. And because of the drought, we ended up driving a long way with this turtle and its smell in our car. But eventually, we came to a bridge that crossed an actual stream that had running water in it. And my friend carried the turtle out of the car, and he let it just sit on the palm of his hand. And then he gently lowered his hand into the stream so as not to shock the turtle too much. Um, When the turtle felt the cool water flowing all around it, its legs emerged and then its head emerged. And surprisingly, it didn't immediately leave my friend's hand. It sat there for quite a few moments. And then eventually it turned its head and it looked at us for quite a few moments and it made actual eye contact with my friend and then with me. And in that moment of eye contact, I experienced a surge of delight for this being. Imagining how it must have felt sitting in that slowly drying up water hole, taking the risk to leave the mud and plod along the road, not knowing if or when there might be fresh water And during all that journey, being extremely vulnerable to predators and to cars. And then, suddenly being plucked out of that environment and being placed in a completely unknown one. Not knowing if death was coming at any minute. Before finally, feeling its whole body being emerged, submerged in cool, flowing water. And coming back to full health, to life. And I thought that might be a moment of turtle Nibbana. <laughs> so again, as you hear this description, you might notice if there's any flicker of response, any, anything in the terrain of delight or joy or gratitude, appreciation. This is the terrain of mudita. And again, you might just notice if it feels subtly different from metta or compassion. So we come to the fourth of these qualities now, which is upekka, usually translated as equanimity, which isn't a very common word in English anymore. In fact, I don't think I'd even heard of it until I came into contact with these teachings. But basically it means balance of mind, evenness, steadiness, stability, composure. And it's the capacity to meet whatever we experience, pleasant or unpleasant, delightful or painful, with non-reactivity. But this non-reactivity is not a disconnected or dull, blank, non-responsiveness. True equanimity has a refined energy to it. We're open to whatever presents itself without moving into any form of wanting or not wanting. So it's a quality of deep acceptance and peace. And again, just to get a quick sense of the kinds of phrases we might use in equanimity practice, those that are used more generally for any life situation are things like, may I be open and balanced and peaceful? Or may I open to how it is? right now because this is how it is right now we can also cultivate equanimity in relation to people particularly people we might be having challenges with and in this case the phrases might be something like this i care about you but i cannot live your life for you your happiness or unhappiness depends upon your actions not upon my wishes for you. So we'll likely be talking more about equanimity and the other qualities later in the retreat. So for now, just to say that the Pali word upekka has etymological roots in, a words, in words associated with seeing, with vision. So one literal translation of upekka is to look over, which suggests being in a position to see the bigger picture. So it links directly to clear seeing, to insight or vipassana. And I think of it as being like when we climb a mountainside. After we've made a lot of uphill effort, we might finally get above the tree line and we can look out over the whole countryside below and see where we've come from in a whole new context. And in that moment of clear seeing, there's openness and spaciousness and expansiveness. We're not just stuck in our own narrow viewpoints anymore. So that change of perspective is a moment of freedom, which is the whole goal of this practice. So perhaps you might be wondering what kind of creature might represent this quality of equanimity. I've been wondering the same thing, (laughs) because this is actually a little more challenging, maybe a little bit of a stretch. I was trying to think of a wild being that we find around here that might possibly relate to equanimity. A creature that doesn't automatically bring up strong like or dislike. And in the end, what I came up with are the turkey vultures. So for most people, I think these aren't cute in the way that, say, chickadees are. And they aren't aggressive to humans in the way some wild creatures can be. So hopefully for you, turkey vultures don't immediately evoke pleasant or unpleasant. The reason I chose them, because when we see them soaring on thermal updrafts way up high in the sky, we might feel a sense of respect or even awe, and we might be reminded of equanimity's connection with seeing the bigger picture and with spaciousness, the vastness of the sky, that can put our own small struggles into perspective. So that's a very brief overview of what these four Brahma Vihara qualities are. And after the talk, I'll put out a a resource sheet on the board that has some of the phrases and some of this information. So if it does feel relevant for your practice, you might incorporate it. But in the time that we have left, I wanted to explore how these four qualities, these four practices are interrelated. Because for me, practicing with all four of them has brought the greatest benefits. Just like a four-ply or four-strand piece of rope is stronger than a single-ply rope, in the same way, all four of these work together very powerfully to strengthen our hearts and minds and to protect us from afflictive states. So, in my own practice, I got interested in the relationship between these qualities a few years ago when I was on retreat at the forest refuge just up here. And one of the teachers was talking about the nature of mind. And he quoted a, a well known quote by the 19th century Tibetan meditation master, Shamkar who says, the mind nature is vivid as a flawless piece of crystal, intrinsically empty, naturally radiant, ceaselessly responsive. And at the time, that phrase really struck me. So I'll just read it again. The mind nature is vivid as a flawless piece of crystal, intrinsically empty, naturally radiant, ceaselessly responsive. And I'd been practicing on that retreat with the four Brahma Viharas for a few weeks. And when I heard about the mind being like a flawless piece of crystal, that quality of transparency made sense to me. Because when the heart mind is perfectly clear, it automatically responds in the appropriate way with kindness, or compassion, joy, or equanimity, just as a crystal or a diamond naturally responds to light. Sometimes the diamond flashes red, sometimes blue, sometimes yellow, and all of these colors are possible because of its innate purity. So staying with the image of the diamond, I started to think of a traditional diamond shape with four points. And I imagine the four Brahma-viharas arranged in that diamond shape with metta at the bottom point of the diamond and compassion and joy at the two side points and then equanimity at the top of the diamond. So metta is at the bottom because it's the foundation of the other three. And as I said earlier, when metta turns towards suffering, it manifests as compassion. So compassion is one of the side points of the diamond. Likewise, when metta turns towards what's going well, it flowers as mudita, as appreciative joy. So compassion and appreciative joy are at the two side points of the diamond. And then when appreciative joy and compassion are completely in balance, they might come together at the top of the diamond as equanimity. Equanimity, again, the heart-mind that's totally at ease. So this is just one way we might think of how these four qualities interrelate. There are probably many other ways we could arrange them. But one way this particular arrangement might be helpful is to illustrate how the different qualities can balance each other out. So if, for example, the metta starts to feel a bit dry or superficial, We might change to compassion practice for a while. And when we tune into suffering with an attitude of kindness, it can strengthen our sense of purpose and bring more depth to the metta. On the other hand, there might be times when we start to feel swamped by getting too focused on suffering or perhaps there's too much going on in our lives at that time and we start to feel overwhelmed by what the Taoists call the 10,000 sorrows of life so if we start to feel an imbalance then we might need to consciously turn towards the 10,000 joys and to incline the heart-mind towards mudita to cultivate gratitude for what's going well in our own and and others lives Sometimes, though, this mudita can shade into a kind of giddiness or elation or attachment to pleasantness. And then equanimity might become appropriate, consciously cultivating that balance of heart and mind. In fact, equanimity is a useful antidote to any kind of imbalance, which is another reason that it's at the top of the diamond shape. So this is one way, as I just mentioned, each of these four qualities in the tradition, in the classical teachings, has what is known as a near enemy and a far enemy. So the far enemy of each state is the exact opposite of the quality that we're trying to develop. So for example, with metta or goodwill, the far enemy is ill will or aversion. For karuna or compassion, the far enemy is cruelty. For modita or appreciative joy, the far enemy is envy. And for upeka or equanimity, the far enemy is reactivity. So the far enemies are usually fairly easy to spot because they're quite away off target. The so-called near enemies are Qualities that at first glance might seem close to the Brahma Vihara, but if we look more carefully, we recognize they're a bit off in some way. So again, with metta, goodwill, the near enemy is dependent attachment or sentimentality or conditional affection. For karuna or compassion, the near enemy is pity, a kind of distant looking down on. Sometimes it's also falling into sorrow. For mudita or appreciative joy, the near enemy is exuberance, giddiness, or ungrounded effusiveness. And for upekar or equanimity, the near enemy is indifference. And again, because all of these four Brahma work together to support and strengthen each other, then when we do recognize that we've moved into enemy terrain, we can turn to one of the other Brahma Viharas as an antidote. So to get a sense of how this works, I quite often share a piece of writing by two English Dharma teachers, Caroline Jones and Paul Burroughs. Some of you may know Caroline as the current resident teacher at the Forest Refuge. And this is she, how she and her colleague describe the interrelationship between these four brahma-viharas. Metta, or kindness, is the love that connects. It's an antidote to all forms of aversion. It is not attachment. If it slides into sentimentality, karuna, or compassion, brings the heart back into balance. Karuna... The love that responds is an antidote to cruelty. It is not pity. If it slides into sorrow, mudita, or appreciative joy, brings the heart back into balance. Mudita, the love that celebrates, is an antidote to envy. It is not competitive. If it slides into agitated excitement, upeka, equanimity, brings the heart back into balance. Upeka, the love that allows, is the antidote to partiality. It is not indifference. If it slides into disconnection, metta brings the heart back into balance. So in that description we can see how each of these four qualities can be used to overcome an unhelpful mind state and that each quality helps to balance the others out. And so you might have noticed that each quality naturally slides into the next but in the end we return again to metta because if the last quality equanimity slides into disconnection it's metta that brings the heart back into balance. So we come full circle, working through each of these qualities over and over again, a spiraling journey around and through all four that together creates a beautiful force field of unconditional love. And because of neuroplasticity, it is possible to literally reshape our hearts and minds. And the Buddha recognized this possibility shortly before his awakening after he'd spent many years practicing mindfulness of the mind. Through careful observation of his own heart-mind, he understood how repeatedly thinking certain types of thoughts strengthens them so that over time they become our default setting. So in the Vitaka Sutta, two kinds of thoughts, he's reported to have said practitioners whatever a practitioner frequently thinks and ponders upon that will become the inclination of their mind if one frequently thinks and ponders upon thoughts of sensual desire one has abandoned the thought of sensual of renunciation to cultivate sensual desire and then one's mind inclines to thoughts of sensual desire If one frequently thinks and ponders upon thoughts of ill will, upon thoughts of cruelty, one has abandoned the thought of non-cruelty to cultivate the thought of cruelty. And then one's mind inclines in thoughts of cruelty. So what the Buddha is pointing to here is neuroplasticity. And as neuroscientists now know, neurons that fire together wire together so whether we're aware of it or not, we all of us are creating pathways within our own minds, sculpting our hearts and minds. And the good news is that we can change these tracks. We can strengthen the beneficial neural pathways and withdraw energy from the unbeneficial ones. And this is one place that the Brahma Vihara practices are so useful And for myself, I'm so grateful that in the Buddha's teachings, he didn't just say, be kind and leave it at that. He gave us actual practices that we can do to develop these skillful qualities. So we will be practicing with metta at least once a week. And there's lots more that I could say here, but I thought... uh, to bring the talk to a close by just sharing a real life example of someone who for me embodies many of these Brahma Vihara qualities. And for some reason, as I was putting this talk together over the last few days, I found myself remembering a person who I hadn't thought of, hadn't had any contact with for quite a few years. And that's an elderly Sri Lankan nun by the name of Bhikkhuni Kusama. I don't know if any of you know her, and I'm not sure why she kept coming to my mind, but she did. And as these different memories were coming up, I realized that in many ways, the different memories that were coming to mind had a flavor of these different Brahma Vihara qualities. So when you hear me describe her, you might just notice, if you do recognize some of these aspects of kindness and compassion, appreciative joy, and equanimity. Not necessarily in that order. So I first heard about this nun from a friend in Thailand who told me that Bhikkhuni Kusuma had been one of the first women to take full ordination as a nun back in 1996 in Sarnath in India. And that piqued my interest. So through that friend I made contact with Bikuni Kusuma. We had a few email exchanges, and I found out that she was planning to visit Australia. And I was at that time managing a small meditation center in New South Wales. And she agreed to come and teach a weekend retreat for us. And the first time I met her, I immediately felt her warmth, openness, kindness. And she seemed to me to be the embodiment of meta energy, before becoming a Bikuni, she had brought up six children, two of whom had died tragically. But in spite of that, she just radiated a kind of grandmotherly warmth. And whenever I was around her, she would always take my hand, not for support because she was elderly, but because of her natural wish to connect, to offer warmth. And on that first weekend retreat that she taught, I was supposed to be doing the cooking and she was supposed to be doing the teaching. <laughs> but Bikuni Kusuma spent quite a bit of time in the kitchen, very good-naturedly su- supervising me to prepare her favorite Sri Lankan dishes because she wanted to share them with the meditators. And when the food was served, she watched with delight when people went back to take second helpings. And as I got to know her a little better during that weekend and subsequent visits, I discovered that there were many other dimensions to her. She had been a high school science teacher for 12 years and then an English lecturer at university in Sri Lanka for 20 years. And according to her biography, her life changed when she started studying for a master's degree in Buddhism and she stumbled across the Terragata, the poems of the Buddhist nuns. And at that point it said her mind became filled with thoughts of enlightenment for women. So she secured a small research grant to write a doctoral thesis with the intention of helping to um, drive interest in reviving the lineage of fully ordained nuns. And she and some friends found a senior monk General, I think Vipula Saratera, who was willing to hold an ordination ceremony. And this was very controversial in Sri Lanka at that time, so there were many twists and turns in the events leading up to this ceremony. And Bhikkhuni Kusma told me that, as even though most of the details of the ceremony to be held in Sarnath in India, had been arranged as the time got closer, hostility grew and some of the nuns who were planning to ordain received death threats. And as things got more heated, shortly before the ceremony, Venerable Vipu, I can't say that, Vipula Sara, sorry if he's still alive, Vipula Sara Tara, asked her, Bikuni kusuma, if she would become one of the nuns to ordain. And her first response she told me was, no, I'm the researcher. (laughs) It's not about me being a nun. But she went away and she thought about it and she thought to herself, I'm an older woman now. I've lived a full life. If there are death threats, let me be the one who dies, not one of these younger nuns. So in 1996, she went ahead. She took full ordination, become a bhikkhuni, out of compassion for the other women who wanted to follow that path. And in 2012, she was interviewed by a Sri Lankan newspaper about that time, and I was struck by her equanimity. She said, somewhat to my surprise, I find that the incidents in the past, which at that time may have been so difficult and sad to deal with, now do not arise any strong emotional response in my mind. The events that had made deep impressions on me seem to be long dead and gone. I do not feel any strong likes or dislikes or anger or sadness. Everything is buried in the sands of time, and I know that all of it will fade away with my death and dissolution. I think we have time for a quick postscript to that story. <laughs> Almost 10 years after I first met Bikuni Kusuma in Australia, I was living and working here at IMS, and someone in the front office told me that a fully ordained nun from Sri Lanka had called the center and asked to visit, and if possible, to meet Joseph. And it turned out to be Bikuni Kusuma. She was at least 80 years old at that time. And although she had no idea that I was at IMS and I hadn't seen her for 10 years, when her supporters drove her up in the car and it arrived out the front here, she rolled down the window and she looked at me and without missing a beat, she said, hello, Jill from the Blue Mountains in Australia. (laughs) So pretty sharp. And then Joseph came out and she told him that in the 1990s she'd served him lunch in her home in Sri Lanka. And ever since then, she had wanted to visit IMS before she died. So the three of us came into the meditation hall here. It was between courses, so nobody was around. And Bhikkhuni Kusama started prostrating to the Buddha here, and tears were rolling down her face, tears of happiness. She said again, all my life I wanted to visit IMS before I die, and now I'm here. So she bowed, and I bowed, and I was crying. Joseph bowed. I don't think he was crying. But (laughs) nevertheless, I felt this wave of mudita about how much it meant for her to be here. And her living example has inspired me to try to establish the Brahma Viharas more and more fully in my own heart and mind so that no matter what circumstances I might find myself in, the diamond heart of kindness, of compassion, of joy, of equanimity, might still shine out. So may we all abide in well-being, in freedom from hostility, in freedom from ill-will, in freedom from anxiety, and may we maintain well-being in ourselves. Thank you for your kind attention. Let's just sit in silence for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.